Welcome to the Combat Intelligent Athlete Show, where we talk and punch our way through achieving peak performance on the mat, surviving the street, and how to take on the martial arts of everyday life and win. And now, here is your host, Coach Rodney King. Hey Mick, can you hear me? I can hear you, Mick. Can you hear me? Yeah, good. So, how are you doing? Hey, not too bad. Just be, just been running around all day doing things. Life gets in the way, as it usually does, you know. <laughs> Absolutely, man. Well, are you happy just to jump straight into this? Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, suppose man. So. Let's just get into it. So, I thought, look, you know what? I know you're not big on kind of giving, you know, major backgrounds, and I get where you come from on that, but maybe just. Give a, a short overview of at least, you know, where you situate yourself right now and how you see your role within the sphere of martial arts, self-preservation, and so forth. Yeah, you know, I kind of, I've kind of ended up in a place where, to me, it's not really about the martial arts stuff anymore. I kind of, I kind of got bitten by that bug when I was real young, went crazy on it, and then I kind of got weaned off that because I was doing a lot of work that was requiring a lot more kind of pragmatic stuff, you know? And I found that's what I, I preferred, to be honest. Um, so the place where I'm at right now is everything I do is just just that pragmatic focus, you know? So I don't do it, I, I, you know, I don't do the martial arts stuff even recreationally or out of interest anymore, really. Um, to me, it's just, and it's a, it's a cliche, it's just another a tool in the box, you know, to use that old that old chestnut. And um, I have no I have no issue with martial arts as such at all. It's just I kind of kind of grew out of it, you know, personally. Um, I don't know how you feel on that. You you're, you, know, you you train because you love the the arts, etc. Um, I do, but I think I think it's more um, I think it's still more pragmatic, right? I think. I generally, I generally use martial arts just as an umbrella term, and I think probably the reason why I use that term versus maybe not something else is that it's the most easily understood within society. I mean, it's something that most people, when you kind of bring that term up, they kind of have an idea of what you're talking about, right? I mean, we could define it in certain ways that some people may not understand at all. So martial arts, for me, is just kind of more of an umbrella term. But even within that, I'm still always focused on how would this ultimately apply in the reality of what it's designed for. And so at the end of the day, and, I, and I'm sure you would agree with that, right, is that regardless, I guess, for the reasons why people may train in martial arts, if we can just use that as an umbrella term, ultimately, I would think that everybody, at least to some degree, would like to know how to utilize those skills in self-preservation. Oh, yeah. I think that's, I think that, no matter what people say, I think the initial draw is, can I improve my survivability? You know, I think that's the initial draw of most martial arts. I think that's, people might get into it for all kinds of spiritual and recreational reasons, but I think deep down, I think, yeah, absolutely. I think the self-defense thing has always been the major draw for the martial arts. And I think that, you know, you take the, the, the classical or the traditional, whichever term you would want to use, 
if you took them back to when they were first formed and for the reasons they were first formed, I think they would look nothing like the iteration of today, personally. You know, I think whenever you stop using something um, functionally, then elements or ornamentation is bound to creep in. You know, I use a, the usual analogy I would use is if you look at, say, a military officer's dress sword, you know, it's, it's a work of art. It's a thing of beauty. And there's no doubt about it that if, if Captain so-and-so ran you through with it, you'd probably die from it. You know, so it could still be used as a sword. But I think if you were to start to say, ah, it's a really effective weapon to take to war, I think you're going to get a bit of a surprise when you start comparing it to the original version of what it, is, what it used to be. Because it's become an ornament, hasn't it? Worn for ceremonial purposes. And I think a lot of martial arts have gone down that path. And undoubtedly, if any martial art guy kicks you in the head, you're kicked in the head, you know? So I would never say, well, that's not effective. I just think that they are surrounded, if you know what I mean, by a lot of extraneous material that, for me, I don't want. So I purely only want that the 5% of any martial art that's really effective, you know? And I've just, you know, gone down that path is all it is. So uh, I know people, some people don't, don't, don't agree with that, and uh, it's good. It's fine, you know. Everybody's entitled to an opinion, even me. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, look, I, I mean, I agree. I, I think just, I guess, it depends on, on, on the person, of course, and um, where they lie within that spectrum. And, and that's something maybe we can talk about, right? I think part of the problem is oftentimes is that it's kind of a paradox, actually, is that many people who train in martial arts don't live in parts of the world that would be considered violent or war zones, right? So I mean, I guess you could do like a kind of a cursory kind of personal research if you wanted to, if somebody's listening to this. And often what I say is go and look at the most, what is often presented as extreme versions of self-defense. And ironically, they are not in the war zones or the barrios or, you know, the townships of the world, where you tend to find these are actually in the middle to upper class neighborhoods of the world. Of course, of course. And this is what's allowed absolute nonsense to flourish because it's never going to get put to the test. All the time it ever gets tested out is, in, is within a purely confirmation bias environment twice a week for two hours in a, in a hall somewhere and it gets tested and it's effective, but it's, it, the chances of it ever being used as is, yeah, minor, because the people training in it, the demographic who train in it, tend not to be the guys that are going in harm's way or, being, or, 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 or who live in harm's way by default, yeah? And, yeah, I mean, somebody once said, uh, there's a reason why you don't find these crazy systems in all the worst neighbourhoods, but you all always find a boxing gym. So... <laughs> And I think that rings true, to be quite honest. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, that's one of the reasons. I mean, I, I've, I've talked about this previously, but, you know, as I was growing up, you know, a lot of people who listen to the podcast and obviously follow me know that I was brought up in a really rough neighborhood. And what was really evident to me as a young adult, like a teenager, especially in my school, was that the guys that nobody picked on were the guys that did boxing. 
And that was actually one of the reasons why I gravitated towards wanting to train Western boxing because I noticed that. You know, you could be in the school and you could be training quote unquote martial arts, some of the traditional systems, and the, the bullies of the school or the tough guys of the school wouldn't give a shit one way or the other. They would still pick on you. But the boxers, they were left alone. And it was when I entered my, you know, the first time I entered a boxing gym and I started training with Willie Tawil, who's now passed away, and he was a bronze medalist in the Helsinki Olympics. But it was quite evident why that was the case, right? Because it wasn't a stylized experience. It was, hey, here's some gloves. Let's get in the ring and let's put this thing to work. Well, it's, it's honest, isn't it? You can't, you can't fake it. Yeah. There's a reason why there aren't, you know, weekend, you know, professional boxing seminars, you know, where after two days you can get in the ring and have a real, there's a reason for that. It's because deep down people know that they're going to get their heads punched in. Whereas every other kind of cockamamie system, yeah, there's two week, there's two day courses in that, four day qualification, things like this. You don't get that in boxing or wrestling, etc. because it's too honest. You can't fake it. You know, it's like, it's like any sport, you know, you can't fake throwing a javelin. You can't, theorize it you can't talk about it yours either goes further than his or it doesn't so that's why i you know my biggest regret is I, I never followed the sport the combat sport route when i was a kid because i was like i say i was bitten by the, the kung fu bug and i pursued that you know overzealously to be quite honest and i dismissed boxing and wrestling and even things like judo because they were kind of sporting and I wanted the Kung Fu stuff. You know, I wanted the Bruce Lee stuff. I wanted the David Carradine Kung Fu series kind of stuff. And it's to my biggest regret that I, I, I overlooked all that stuff and focused on anything that kind of came out of way out of the East and you wore pajamas and things like that. Mm. My biggest regret. And every, every time somebody asks me now, I want to do some pragmatic stuff some functional stuff. What shall I train in? Shall I go to this combative guy should I go to this kind of craft guy and I say well my biggest advice I could give you is is to you do some sort of combat sport as your your vehicle you know as your main delivery system as, as people call it and the other stuff the specialized stuff the weapon stuff you know the seminars that you're going to go on you can bolt them onto that vehicle but don't just be the guy who just goes to the seminars you know because you're the equivalent of a guy who's got a lot of spare parts on his garage floor, but he hasn't got a car to put them on. You need a car, you know? You need something to drive. So I, I, I implore people, don't make the mistake I made and overlook that stuff. And I'm just sick of hearing the argument, yeah, but that's only a sport, you know? That's not a real fight. And I'll tell anybody like that, you get in a ring with, with a heavyweight Thai boxer, and afterwards, when you wake up, you tell me you weren't in a real fight. Yeah, and I mean, it, it, it is quite a, a prevalent argument, right? I mean, and I've obviously, I've addressed this in my own way, in my blogs and so forth, where this kind of prevailing argument, oh, you know, you got, those guys do sport and we do street and it's not the same thing. And, you know, those guys are basically doing rule fighting and on the street, there's no rules. But as you noted, I mean, you know, if you got into the ring with somebody who is a highly skilled combat athlete, Let's talk afterwards if you actually are going to turn around and say you haven't been in a fight. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. I mean, you know what I like? I, I've got I've, 
I've heard the argument so many times. I've almost got like a Rolodex of answers for these now that I can just you just pull them out. You know, when they say that, yeah, but the rules guy, you see, he's going to be so conditioned by those rules. And I say, what? Hang on. What are you going to tell me now? He's going to get beaten up before he takes his shoes and socks off. Come on. You know, or he's going to be so conditioned by those rules. He's going to uh, uh, abide by them in the middle of the, this kind of life or death fight. And I says, okay, so he's, if he's conditioned by these rules. Fair enough. Even if he fought by the rules, he'd probably still win that fight, to be quite honest. Because biting and eye gouging isn't the nuclear weapon a lot of people think it is. You know, getting punched in the head or kicked in the head, you know, or choked unconscious still applies more force to another human being than all those other dirty trick stuff. They're only banned because they unnecessarily injure people, not because they're so effective, you know? But my favorite one is though, when they talk about people being massively conditioned that they won't be able to not abide by the rules, I said, but, but you guys, so what about your conditioning then? Because your conditioning, your training to pull every punch and ensure, you know? Or you can only hit a guy with a massive padded helmet on, you know, things like that. So at least you can fight one guy properly. You're play fighting. You know, you're doing these sequences of movements that look like a movie fight scene. You're pulling every shot and you're relying on the other guy acting out what should have happened. So maybe that conditioning would get you killed. You know, you know? that's my answer to that one, to be honest. Especially, And then when they bring in things like, well, yeah. but what about multiples then? And I says, you know what? You get a good MMA fighter or a good boxer, anybody like that, put him in a situation where there are multiples, and you know what? He'll get tagged quite a few times to start with, but he'll adapt. He'll figure it out. You know, add a weapon in there. You know, if a BJJ guy can adapt to striking to get into the MMA game, then guess what? Add a weapon in there, and yeah, he'll get stabbed a few times to start with, but he'll adapt real quick and he'll start controlling the hands more and things like this in the same way that he can't do pure BJJ because he'd leave his head open all the time, so he has to adapt for that. They'll adapt really fast. And then, guess what? You've still got a guy who can at least fight one guy properly. How about you guys? Have you got it fixed, you know, sorted out? No. That's my, it's always my argument. I've heard it so many times now, I can just reel off these answers, off this mental Rolodex, you know. It's... it's it's just such a cliche argument now, isn't it? Sport versus street. It's like fist versus palm and nine millimeter versus 45. And it's like, whatever, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. And I think the reasons that you, or at least your, 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 your rebuttal on, on that whole argument are really valid. And I think one of the things that I try to suggest to people all the time, when we talk about training in a combat athletic base is that, because you're training against a resisting, uncooperative opponent, you're building certain attributes that are quite hard, if not impossible, to build when you're doing these kind of predefined sequences that you often see presented in the self-defense realm, right? I mean, in those, in those predefined sequences, there's no opportunity to develop things like distancing, timing, what it's like to take a strike or to give a strike or... For example, hitting a moving, aggressive target. I mean, these are things that are left out but are going to be common denominators when you actually step into the world of self-preservation and you actually have to go hands-on in interpersonal violence. Oh, I, ask, I ask questions at seminars. You know, I, ask, I try to ask a lot of trick questions and try and get people thinking more than just spoon-feeding them stuff. So it's a bit of Socratic method and a bit of, I don't know, Jedi mind fucking trickery. I don't know what you'd call it. But things like, you know, you ask, you ask a whole group of people, who here has seen a fight? 
and everyone puts their hands up, you know. And you, you know, even if you weren't in it, you've seen one, you've watched it on YouTube or whatever, you've seen a real fight. So I say, okay, so who's seen in that real fight anybody standing still? And everyone's like, no, doesn't happen. So you know, we we go we go ahead and we say, so can we assume then that in a fight, everybody's moving all the time, and everybody's in agreement. So I said, okay, so it's good. And you know, my usual bag is to teach striking. And uh, I'll say, okay, so who who here practices hitting moving targets? And everybody kind of looks at each other and then suddenly realize, yeah, we don't. Because I, 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 you know, I'll add, you know, not a pad that moves and then stops, gets hit, and then moves again and stops and gets hit, but a pad that's in motion the whole time and maybe coming straight at you. Can you hit that? Can you get that focal point and land that shot? Or is it something that you don't train and the first time you're going to have to try and do it is in a live environment? And what I try and do is that, you know, people talk about training scales all the time. One thing I like to focus on are the training voids, the things we should be practicing, but we don't. And we kind of hopefully manage to do it on the day. And I, I just feel that we can, we can address a lot of those a lot earlier in training rather than just leaving it till when we start sparring, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and I think, you know, when you talk about sparring there, that's important too, right, is the, this idea of intention, which I think is often left out when people are training in self-defense. When I watch a lot of the stuff that's put out on YouTube, as we've been discussing, I mean, it's a typical kind of process that you see, right? The guy has somebody feed them something. They go into their, you know, their, their offensive blitz. They look like Jason Bourne, but the other person is ultimately not fighting back. And then the guy that's defending himself always wins but what they don't take into account is this idea of intention right the bad guy has an intention and he is going to do whatever he needs to do to win that fight and so ultimately what it means is he's not just going to stop the first time you hit him he's going to keep coming back and he's going to keep coming back for more and likely he's done it multiple more times than you have and so he has that experience behind him as well and he's going to bring all that to bear in that present moment and so unless you're training against somebody who's fighting back there is no way that you are going to put yourself in a position to actually be able to defend yourself absolutely i mean we can look at these kind of super state-of-the-art high-level scenario training and things like that and uh you still see classic old one-step sparring stuff in there, you know, from your first karate lessons when you were a kid, that sort of stuff. And these guys who are, I don't know, envisaging themselves as being these leading exponents, these cutting-edge kind of instructors, if you suggested, what about doing some one-step sparring like, like the karate guys used to do, they'd probably laugh at you. But you think, well, that's actually what you're doing, to be quite honest. You're just doing a movie fight scene. And like you said before, though, the things you can't get from that is you can't get the, the weight shift dynamic of how to put some power in a shot. So you might be tapping those targets really fast in a blur of activity, but we all know that's going to change when you have to start to sink them in because the whole dynamic of how you hit and how fast you have to be when you've got to talk about things like penetration, you've got to kind of control the recoil you're getting from the shot, all that stuff, you can't get that when you're just tapping away at people. I mean, I, one of my favourite ones, you look at these guys wearing these kind of suits that cost a lot of money and you think, with the way you're hitting these guys, I don't know why you're bothered wearing that suit, to be quite honest. I don't think you'd even need a gun shield, you know? But uh, you've got to have that intent, like you say. You've got to face a guy who's trying to do to you at least what you're trying to do to him at some point. I don't believe you have to do it all the time because I think it can get quite destructive, but it's got to be the pinnacle of where you're going. 
at least, you know. And uh, I think people miss out on that when they, they issue statements like, you know, our stuff is, is too dangerous to spar with or, you know, we, we, we don't want to train that mindset, that reciprocal mindset. And, you know, okay, but you can modify standard sparring. So I don't do a lot of standard sparring like you would, say, in, in, a, in a boxing yeah, environment but I do a lot of force on force where two guys are trying to kill each other you know where everything is allowed and we build up to that you know so the guys that just completely disregard it because their stuff's too dangerous or they haven't figured out a way of doing real force on force with an active live opponent who has intent and he has the ability to do anything and you know he's not he's not bound by a script I think those guys are yeah, they're doing themselves a massive disservice and what a shock they are going to get when they suddenly come up against somebody who is trying to do his damnedest. And when they meet people who are a lot more resilient than you imagine, you know, people can take a lot of damage, as you know, and still be dangerous, you know. And uh, without, without, without being like, you know, without saying overkill, you know, it's, you've got to put in a lot of work on somebody to get them closed down. You've got to put in a lot of work. They're not going to go down with one shot as prescribed. They're not definitely going to bend over when you hit them in the balls. They're not definitely going to fall over when you hit them in the head. Yeah, so that's in, that's interesting, right, that you say that because I guess, you know, one of the things I'd like to hear from, from your reflections on this because this, this doesn't make sense to me either and it drives me insane, right? I guess before the the advent of the internet and especially YouTube, there was really little way to know what really went down, if we want to call it, in fights, right? And so you kind of had to just take take it by face value that the person that was teaching you knew what they were talking about. And ultimately, unless you had been in multiple experiences and in interpersonal violence, you really didn't have an idea of how this thing was going to go down. But now with the advent of, say, for example, like YouTube, you, I mean, we can argue that I guess the moral aspect of this, but the fact of the matter is you can go up on YouTube and you can actually find fight compilations, anything you want, right? And, and we're talking about real actual fights out on the street where people are going at each other, sometimes mass attack and so forth. And it's so evident from watching that. I mean, you don't even have to take a class in anything to be able to see what comes up over and over and over again, yet still. Still, we have all this other stuff being taught that is so far, far taken, you know, away from the realities of what it is to be an interpersonal violence, even though there are, there are hundreds of examples of what this thing actually looks like. More than that, I mean, we have, there's a term for it, is belief, and it's, it's what you have to apply to enjoy watching a movie. You know, you know, you can't watch Star Wars and go, yeah, that's that's all bullshit because they haven't invented that yet, and they haven't come to you. You've got to suspend your disbelief for a little while and just enjoy the movie. But we can't apply that, like you say, to fighting. And I think what you said before, have that experience, and even people who have seen fights. I know people who've seen fights or they were in a fight, and that's why they're training with me now because they nearly got their head kicked in or they did get their head kicked in, and they've sought out some kind of training. You can still see these people gravitating towards the crazy stuff. And then you look at them and you think, your frame of reference of fighting, I'm guessing, has come mainly from what you've watched on TV. You know? Because 
you cannot ignore. I mean, they'll, they'll, they'll have been in a fight or seen a fight and, you know, seen some guy smash another guy up in a bar, but they'll disregard that because that's not a real fight because it doesn't look the way they want it to look because they want it to look like the Jason Bourne type fights. And it just drives me crazy. I mean, I had a, a thing recently and somebody yet again was saying, oh, well, you know, quite negative you you're always you know posting these things about what not to do why don't you post things about what to do and what i did was i just went back down through my facebook thing and i found like out of 60 posts that was as far as my phone would scroll before it crashed i think five were me being negative about something you know but anyway it's what sticks in people's brain and i says how many times can i say to train this small skill set that we all know exists you know, the human race, if we've been around for 200,000 years, that experiment has been running for 200,000 years, and we've figured it out by now. You know, as you say, you watch all these fights, whether it's a pro fight or it's a Joe fight outside a club, the same kind of tactical model crops up the whole time. The same tools make an appearance. And only occasionally is there some kind of outlier, you know, stuff comes in. So it says, look, how many times do I have to reiterate, train, you know, having good hands and good low kicks and, you know, the basic MMA skill set, for instance, and then add in some of the the anti-weapon stuff and the multiple tactics stuff and the, the soft skills. How many times can we keep saying that? Because that's what it is. We, we, the experiment has been done with millions of samples size. You know, it's a, it's a huge experiment. It's done. We've got the results. And we can watch them now in glorious technicolor and rewind them and frame by frame them and there's nothing new appears. And that's my biggest thing is that I, I'm not trying to teach people new stuff. And a massive argument that I always put across is of all the problems we have in this business, the one problem we don't have is not having enough stuff. You know, we've got enough stuff. If you've been training any kind of martial art or combat sport for six months, you've probably got the curriculum that you now need to have a fight with. Yeah. The problem we do have is we're just not good enough at applying that stuff or we train that stuff in the wrong way. But it's not a case of I need to learn some more techniques. I need to travel the world, you know, find that cave on top of the mountain and the old guy can teach me this new way of well, – I don't think that's a problem at all, you know. <laughs> I think other people do, though. He's always looking for the new, the new thing. You know, that, that new technique, that new armbar variation, that new knife that they just need to have. And yet, the problem is, it's performance, in my opinion. You know, performance and training, that's where the mileage should be put getting put in, but it doesn't. Yeah, exactly. I mean, one of the things that I always talk about is that it's not the technique that's the problem, it's the delivery vehicle. And I see what happens a lot of times with these people online is they almost like collectors collecting techniques collecting techniques you know just constantly collecting is thinking and i guess in a sense that if i know more then i'll be able to do more but actually a lot of times and and, and you've probably seen this yourself is that in the more you know sometimes can, that's the very thing that can get you into trouble because it is it's not a question of how much you know it's what you can apply and when you actually start looking at the application as we've been discussing as as you see on youtube and you as you rightfully noted i mean the model is there you can see time and time again without every now and again like you noted there's an outlier there's something that really weird that happens out of the box so to speak but for the most part it's the same stuff that comes up over and over and over again 
And it makes sense then to at least take the time to distill that and say, okay, how do I train that? And when you start looking at it closely, you start realizing, yes, on, on the face of it, when you look at interpersonal violence, it's a very complex situation. But if you're going to try to approach complexity with complexity, you always are going to find ultimately that you're going to fail. The way to deal with it is to find simple solutions to complex problems. Yeah, I mean, I was just having a conversation um, yesterday, and one of my favorite expressions is, is elegance. When you say elegance to people, they automatically assume it's something kind of fancy and, and, and stylish. And what, but the true meaning of elegance is something that is simple. You know, it's a, it's a mathematics term, like Pythagoras' theorem is, is, is an elegant theory, or pi, the number pi is an elegant solution because it solves so many problems, you know. And in engineering, you know, the cam or the wedge is an elegant machine because it's so simple yet it has so many uses. So I always strive for that that elegance, you know, that kind of whole Occam's razor kind of whatever passing one kind of thing. And uh, I think that's where people kind of do go wrong is that they're always looking for a better way, but they're not looking for a they're not looking for a better way of doing what they already have. They're looking for a, a, a better way of you know the redesigning the wheel kind of thing. Why not just make a better version of the wheel? Because we know it works. It's been proven to work. Nothing else has come close to it, but yet people are still searching that there might just be that thing that will replace it. And I just, yeah, like you, like you say, it drives me crazy. You know, you think, it's, it, to me, it's not rocket science, but I think, I don't know. I don't know what, what gets into some people. that I think, again, movies maybe, that uh, they want to look cool. I don't know if that's the, if that's the thing. Yeah, I think that's I think that's actually part of it, and I think the other part of it, and you know, I'd love to hear your you know your take on this is that, of course, I mean, I guess it, it's a balance here, right? In in one sense, both you and and myself, we do this for a living, and we have to make a living, and we have to obviously, as anybody in the world, we have to pay our bills. But I do think a lot of this complexity comes out of kind of this this marketing initiative where. These trainers, these instructors want to be relevant all the time to their particular student. And the way that they're going to do that is by continuously embellishing this kind of this fight game as something as far more than it actually is. Because if they came in and they said, look, you know what, this is what you really need to know and this is what you need to train, it's going to be quite hard to market that. Well, that's, yeah, it is. I can tell you that from, from, from experience, it is quite hard to market that because that is kind of my business model, you know. And, uh, I mean, I've got a, a self-defeated business model, really, because I, I want people to become autonomous as soon as possible, you know, to become their own coach. And I'll stress that to people, you know. Whenever you look at a technique, even, look at it with the, with the viewpoint that if I have to teach this in 10 minutes, it's just going to change the way I look at it. And it actually massively accelerates people's learning when they do that. Because they then learn to interrogate what they're seeing and think, right, what has to come first, what has to come second. And straight away then, they're thinking for themselves. Because I've always stressed the thing where, you know, under that massive stress, duress, whatever, you're not going to remember anything. You're going to default back to what you know. So my thing is for people to understand, not to remember 10 ways of throwing different 10 different punches, but just to understand how to punch. And that then, you will never forget that because you understand it. But if you try to remember stuff, then stress, the situation is always going to take that away from you. 
And that's when you used to see guys who were very skilled to have that conscious competence. But once they got to a certain point and they got really stressed, then the windmilling comes out again because they haven't really got to that stage where it's become unconscious competence yet, you know? And uh, I think a lot of people, they go for that kind of breadth approach because they don't have any depth, in my opinion. And like you say, they want to stay current and relevant. So whatever's new that comes out, they want to teach it. But I think people, I don't know, I think they don't do themselves any favours by doing that because they end up being the piano teacher who's only one lesson ahead of his student. His student never knows that. Just to him, he knows more. But I think they can come unstuck with that. If you're always going for that breadth and that new thing, I think that's where some guys that I've seen over the years, you know, over a 10 years period, who started off with the best intentions, are really scraping the bottom of the barrel now and doing, you know, underwater ninja knife fighting because somebody asked for it and they want to stay relevant and offer it, rather than pull that guy back and say, let's go for depth, you know. And I, I, that's what I try and do. I try and cover things in depth because I know it's a small skill set and I'm not going to add to it just for the sake of adding to it. So I think, well, what can I do then? Let's go for the depth. Let's look at the, let's look at increasing performance. Let's look at increasing application, feasibility, all that sort of stuff, rather than a new thing. And I, I use the, the expression, you know, in sports, like boxers don't get tired of having the smallest skill set out of any of the martial arts or combat sports put together. How many punches have you got? It's a handful. So it's the smallest curriculum out of any martial art, yet boxers will spend 20 years trying to perfect it. They don't get bored. But the average guy who goes to a combatives class, if he's not learning something new every week, he'll leave and go somewhere where he can. It's that whole different kind of mindset, isn't it? Yeah, and I think that I think that's even more prevalent today when we think about how the world has changed. Right, we we have people with really short attention spans, in you know the whole idea of instant gratification, and so all of that I think is playing into this. And I think a lot of times in trainers or instructors, maybe unintentionally, kind of buy into it as well, you know, and start kind of moving in that direction because they feel if they don't do that, they're not gonna they're not gonna be able to keep the doors open. I think in some respects, though, as well, it's, um, I don't know, without being like kind of derogatory, to, to, to be honest, but I think back in the days when the martial arts were the martial arts and there was none of this reality-based stuff around, if you suddenly turned up and says, I'm an instructor, put a black belt on, then you had to explain yourself. You had to have, you know, better back it up. And I do and I don't miss that, to be quite honest. Because now, quite literally, with a phone call, you ring up one of the big organizations in the UK, for instance, just ring them up, pay the money, you get a certificate through the post, you are now legitimately an instructor of anything you want to call it. You know, And that's a good thing and a bad thing, because I don't believe in having to have this extensive lineage to earn the right to teach something if you're good at something. But still, I think it's a bad thing in other ways as well, because basically, as we see, anybody can be an instructor. You know, and I get people emailing me already. That is their, their their whole motivation is how soon can I become an instructor? You know, and I if if I send them a long email back, it'll go along the lines of, well, nobody in sports really has the intention of being a coach. They all want to be a player, and they all want to be a champion or whatever in any sport. And usually they end up being a coach because they get old or they get injured or they find out they weren't actually that good, but they had the knowledge. 
So they kind of fall into it. But nobody really sets out and says, for my career, I want to be a basketball coach. Nobody really says that. But the combatives industry, and I think it's in the self-defense kind of combatives thing, I think what it is is because we don't have that competition element. There's no title belt as such. So I think it's the next best thing to be an instructor. It's looked upon as being the, the trophy, you know. Whereas in boxing, again, you want to win. You want to be a world champ. That's what you want to do. And you might end up being a coach, but that wasn't your original intention, I don't think. I think that's got a lot to do with it as well. That this, that there isn't the same goal, the same outlet, I think, in the self-defense world. So people become instructors probably too soon, in my opinion. You know, And uh, I'm not saying that everybody has to serve an apprenticeship, but I think some people do try and run before they can walk. And they are one piano lesson ahead of their student, you know. But to their student, they're a piano teacher. Yeah. That might be, quite, might be controversial for some, but um, when it comes to being controversial, really, I don't care, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, well, I, 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 I'm sure you noticed as well is that, you know, most people think I'm controversial as well. I think it's just ultimately we're having a discussion and we're talking about things that people feel uncomfortable talking about. Right. Well, I was going to say that. Yeah, what is controversial? You know, to be honest, is it? Well, is it the truth? Is that what's controversial? You know, and uh, you know, I think I, I read a, a Thomas Sowell quote actually. Um, I think it was today, and uh, sent it to somebody, and uh, it was a good one because it's like people will forgive you when you're wrong, but they won't forgive you when you're right, especially when you being right proves that they were wrong. And I thought that was an excellent quote, you know, when it comes down to being controversial. And people say, you're, you're like, but you're, you know, you're very critical and you're very, and I say, look at the industry. Are you telling me that I'm not justified in being negative and critical about certain aspects of it? And I says, and my, my answer to them is usually, you know, look at the industry, look at it objectively, look at it with, with you know, with a clear, open mind. And I'm telling you that if you're not negative about the same things I'm being negative about, you're part of the problem, pal, you know, because there's nothing positive about people who blatantly lie or people that are deluded enough to, to believe their own lies or people who exaggerate the truth to make something into something it isn't. I think there's nothing positive about that. So, yeah, that's what I usually um, attack as such, if that's the best word to use. I, th I think there's something I'll say too, right? I mean, it's probably going to be, as we've been talking, controversial. But I notice a lot of times is that the guys, and it's mainly guys, who don't actually want to play the game, so to speak. They don't want to put themselves in a position where they actually have to go up against resisting opponents, be that in combat sports or whatever, tend to gravitate more to the kind of unarmed combatives world or the reality-based self-defense world, however it's defined, because in that world, they don't actually ever have to prove that they have that skill set. I mean, as we see on YouTube and other places, Facebook is, is a good example, when these guys constantly come out with these Jason Bourne-style sequences passed off as reality, nowhere in there does that person ever have to show, the person teaching, ever have to show that they can actually apply it against somebody who fights back because it's always set up in such a way that they look like they know what they're doing. Well, I, I even see, you know, quite quite gnarly kind of scenarios where they are doing some decent force on force. But then, even then, 
one of the things I really try and eradicate is that confirmation bias in that am I setting up these drills and this force on force to validate what I want to work? Or am I truly opening up the playing field to see what, what, what does work? Because you can do this either way, can't you? You could... You, know, you can bias your stuff towards striking. You can bias it towards grappling. You can do that. Um, the only bias I tend to use, and I use it in a, I think it's a positive way because it's, it's got two things, is a lot of the force on force I do, I dramatically reduce the time frame. I mean, sometimes literally giving people five seconds of, of time to work because I really want to focus on that, you know, dropping it into first gear and stamping on the gas, spinning the wheels kind of thing. So I've seen that be so potent in so many fights. You know, I've used it. I've seen other guys use it. I've had it used on me. And that, can I beat that guy before he gets started thing? I've, I've just seen it work too many times for it to be a fluke. And I really try and stress that. And besides, there's so many other people doing the longer game stuff. Not that many people are doing the short game stuff. So that's what I want to specialize in, you know, rather than competing with all the guys who've got more time in the business than me. But their thing. But uh, I still see that in, in, in pretty good force-on-force force iterations that people still, you look at it, you think, yeah, that wouldn't work if that guy really hit you because, you know, that's why you're thinking that that striking is ineffective, for instance, because you're not really allowing it to be effective. Or if there's something that somebody's not allowed to do, then you've got to be careful about that as well. If you're purporting that this is no holds barred, you know, Fight club, whatever you want to call it, and uh, it's one. Th- yeah, it's one thing I always try and you know steer away from or, or be very cognizant of is where's the bias in this, you know? And for the guys who aren't getting their hands dirty in this sort of stuff, there's a massive amount of bias there. Just crazy, like you say, the sequences they drive me crazy. When people say, you know, look at this training, it's like, that's not training, that's rehearsing. Yeah, I think what you're also speaking to here is is one of the things that I try to implement as much as possible is when I'm talking to the guys that I'm working with is that we're always trying to train to failure, if that makes sense, is that you not so much in the sense that you always want to win, right, but rather to the point of trying to really explore all opportunities, which might mean that you ultimately fail, that you might not actually get the outcome that you want. And in having that, that, that opportunity to fail, you are able to readdress the way that you approach these situations and look at it from a completely different perspective. Because I see that as a common denominator as well as that, as I noted earlier, is that in often in these cases in the reality-based self-defense world, the person that is quote-unquote defending themselves, the victim, is always ultimately becomes the victor. But nowhere in there is there an opportunity for failure where things are not going right, where you're on the back foot and you're losing. And that's equally important, right? Because to assume that you are always going to be in the forward position, that you're always going to be the predominant force is a risky place to start off from. Because I would argue that a lot of the times you're going to be caught in a situation where you're on the back foot. And it's how you're able to basically come back in that moment in time, if at all possible, that's going to define if you're actually going to win this situation or not. Yeah, there's so, there's so much in this, isn't it? I mean, any kind of training, the basic premise of it is some, some kind of overload so that the system has to adapt and improve to cope with that. You know, and that's how you, how you get stronger, it's how you get 
get faster. It's how you get smarter. You know, you overload your capabilities as they are now to the point where you've, you stress the system, which then adapts and improves to cope with it the next time. And then you just, it's a continual process of doing that, isn't it? So we've got to have that failure at some point because, you know, you, you've got to know what what can you do for sure, but you've got to know what can't you do. You've got to, you know, you've got to know your limitations. And in a lot of ways, I, I encourage people, you know, you, you build on your limitations. And if it wasn't for understanding your limitations, you know, we wouldn't have invented airplanes. We'd still be flapping our wings and throwing ourselves off a cliffs. It's only because we accepted we can't fly. We went, okay, so what can we do then? So I think that, that failure thing, yeah, it comes in, in in so many different aspects in that, yeah, it's, it's going to be tested. And testing ultimately means, well, you've got to take this thing to the point where it starts to break. Right, that's the point. You know, what can we now fix? I use um, a sequence where and it's a cyclical thing where we work, we work on skills first. So usually isolate a few skills, uh, develop development quite technically. Then we combine them into drills, see how, how we can apply them together to achieve an effect. Then we test them out and then we repair them because they're ultimately going to fail somewhere. And that repair phase, I think most people have some sort of skills, drills and testing pro- progression. But the repair thing, I think, is vital because... You see a lot of guys doing these kind of crazy scenarios and afterwards it's all group hugs and high fives and look how awesome we are rather than right tell me what went wrong and then you look at it and you kind of debrief yourself on it or what we call an after action review if you're in the military you know and you basically figure out what went wrong what can we improve what can we work on next time and then you spend a bit of time going through that when i'll say in iraq for instance we'd come back off a, off a, off a job we drop off the client and we'd all sit sit around and we'd say, right, we really fucked up this part of that job, didn't we? So then, yeah, we did. So let's go then. In the kit we've still got on, the vehicles we've still got, where we're still, still fresh in our minds, let's go to the training area on the FOB and let's set up some cones or whatever we have to do and rehearse that drop-off that we fucked up and get it right and then go. Otherwise, it's like, it's like having a red light appear on your car dashboard and you put the thing in the garage and then in the morning expect it to go out all by itself. If you don't fix it, you know, so that failure teaches you a lot. It teaches you what needs fixing, if anything. And also it teaches you, yeah, that's not feasible. I'm never going to be able to do that. So what else could I do? Yeah, I love that. I love that. And I, I guess you get this a lot too, which kind of leads into this is that, you know, often I get people asking me questions, for example, oh, what should I do in this situation? And, and they don't want to really hear that there, there's potentially multiple variables. And a lot of the times it might come down to who they are. I mean, when I talk to people, I say, well, you know, you know, especially a lot of times I get asked these questions, for example, say in sparring. Well, I'm training at this German. I'm having a problem with this particular person because he's much taller than me and has a longer reach. So what should I do? I mean, how would you like me to answer that? Unless I can actually see what you're doing, there's no way for me to give you an honest assessment because there could be multiple variables here. Bottom line is you could just suck. Well, people, people want that two-dimensional answer, don't they? They very much revolve around the, the sound bite, the T-shirt slogan, the, the glib um, you know, platitude. They want that kind of cool thing, you know, always do this, never do this. And it's like, oh, come on. It's, it's such a three-dimensional thing that just teaching or trying to get across the real concepts of, of, of positioning and moving yourself you can't just sum it up in a couple of neat paragraphs, always put your feet like this and always, it's like, no, it's a dynamic thing, you know, but people want it to be 
simple, neat and tidy. And two guys fighting. There's so many variables in that. It's just unbelievable. It's just, that can never be nailed down to an exact science, in my opinion. And also, you know, that the thing when they ask that question, yeah, they give you the most general question, but they want a super specific answer. <laughs> thinking, yeah, it just, whatever, come on, you know. It's, it'd be like asking, I don't know, the late Stephen Hawkins, you know, can you explain maths to me? What, what do you expect him to say now? You know, it's, it's too big a subject, isn't it? Just to cover in a, in a quick, you know, always do this or never do that. That's not. T-shirt slogans. I just don't do them. I mean, I used to hate those questions you see. And if you only had one hour to teach somebody, it's like stop. And they go, "What do we? Why? Why?" Says, "I'm not going to answer that question." Well, why not? I says, "That's like asking a a, um, a, a deep sea survival expert. Well, if you only had one hour to teach somebody what to do, they'd fall into the Atlantic. What would you? It's like stop. You just can't. It's just nonsense. But well, people love that kind of listed, clickbaity kind of." platitude don't they they're like the t-shirt slogans yeah i think part of the problem there as well is that our brain in a sense is a pattern making machine we look for patterns we look for sequences it, it allows us to kind of soothe ourselves because you know if we can see a sequence then that makes us feel much more easier about the solution but when, like you're noting when you're talking about things like interpersonal violence that's complex chaotic it's almost impossible to approach it like that i think my theory on this and and maybe i'm totally wrong but one of the things that I, th I think happened a lot in the traditional martial arts and why it went the way that it went is that they saw the chaos and they didn't understand it and they didn't know how to answer it. So what they tried to do is they tried to reverse engineer things. And what they ended up with is basically a sequence that's supposed to represent the fight but will never represent the fight because ultimately it's a dynamic chaotic system and as you start building it back up again so you take that sequence like a form for example and you start trying to apply it within the reality of the fight it breaks down because there are too many variables coming at you you could never tell what that person's going to do and i think that's the thing that i see here right is that it's almost like there's an esp thing going on with a lot of these martial arts instructors as if they somehow have access to this person's consciousness in the sense that they know what this person's going to do and you know if you know anything about fighting oftentimes the person fighting you doesn't know what they're about to do right you don't know if they're going to throw a jab or pick up a brick and you're going to have to respond to that in that very moment as it unfolds. Yeah, I mean, I, I really try and focus on I mean, I don't do any of that kind of sequence training at all, which is kind of difficult sometimes. When people say to me, well, can you demonstrate some of your stuff? And I'm like, well, I could kind of I could punch you in the head. But, you know, but you say that to one of these other kind of guys and they'll like wheel out their six ways of defending against a hand grenade and two ways of defending against a kebab. You know, and they've got all these kind of cool little sequences. And I don't have any of that in the same way as, you know, you ask a boxer, can you can you demonstrate? Can you show some boxing? And he can he can show you the punches, but you can't show you boxing because you have to be fighting a guy to show you boxing. But you ask one of the super systems, and they've got all these cool sequences all laid out. So I've always kind of avoided that in a big way. I've always gone more for that kind of formulaic approach, that generic approach, where we're not just memorizing a endless supply of sequences that will apply to one situation each i think that's kind of absurd that's like trying to memorize every answer you know in maths rather than when you learn the formula and you learn how to combine the formula you've now got all the answers to anything as long as you understand the formula 
But if you're just remembering answers, which is what, or, or, or like learning phrases in a foreign language, you, you may learn a million phrases and it may seem like you're fluent until you meet a guy who really is fluent and then you're, you, you've got nothing, you know, when you're not controlling the dialogue and you have to respond to him and, and be conversational. Because ultimately, you know, I've used that analogy quite a lot with the, with the language thing is those sequences that people learn ultimately are like phrases in a foreign language. And, you know, you can put an accent on them and you can, you can say them with a bit of gusto and it, and it sounds like you're a local, but you're still not conversational. And that's what a fight is. It's a conversation, isn't it? You know, and it all depends. You know, your next answer depends on his, what he just said. You can't pre-plan. That's a speech. You know, that's not a conversation. That's a speech. But if you, you know, if you don't have that ability to be spontaneous and pull stuff together because you understand the language, you're never going to be able to have a conversation with somebody. Same way you never have a fight with somebody if all you've got are a whole bunch of preset sequences. So I've always avoided that. Which then just, it does make it quite tough because it's very hard to have a highlight reel of no, none of that stuff, you know. But it's a cross you have to bear, I suppose. But I think there's, I think there's something important there, and that's possibly something that we could probably offer up as as a suggestion to people listening to this. Maybe we can make the argument and suggest that the more, if you look at something, if you look at a particular system or program and so forth, the more systematized it is, the more sequences it has, the more likely it is untrue, the more likely it is further from reality than it suggests it is. For sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I mean, if you just, if you try to memorize things, I, I have a thing where, you know, you've got a classic kind of a close cover where you wrap one hand around your head kind of thing. You know, you, most styles have it, boxing has it, Muay Thai has it, that kind of thing. And I use, I use the same stuff. When you're up close, you're in the pocket, you've got a fast punch coming at you, you're not going to intercept that punch, you're basically going to catch it on a big shield that you wrap around your head, aren't you? You know, any of those kind of interception kind of parries and things, I save those for when you're at, say, a conversational range and the guy tries to suck a punch and you've got a bit more time to respond. But up close, the time frame is you're looking to get your arm in the way. So I'll teach that exact same thing where you wrap your hand around your head, you get your hand nice and deep on the head, you get your elbow tight and you tuck your head in, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what I will say is, regards to covering, is rather than memorizing that particular shape, the concept of covering would be to get the biggest, most durable thing you have available in between the threat and the target. And people will say, oh, okay, but then they still want to memorize the shape. So then I say, okay, so show me that cover, but I'll grab their arm, as people tend to do in fights. I'll grab their arm and then go to punch with the other hand, and they suddenly go, oh, they can't, can't do the thing that they wanted to do, but the concept is they've still got another arm. Can they wrap that around their head? It won't be as good, but it's still putting something between the threat and the target. So that in that case, the, the concept, the formula of covering is actually more encompassing than just learning one particular shape to make with your arm that may be compromised at the time. And you don't have an answer there. You know? So I try and factor a lot more of that generic kind of stuff in that makes people more spontaneous with what they do rather than they're remembering what to do. Yeah, I like that. I mean, it, it makes perfect sense to me. So we're coming basically up on the hour. So let's kind of like end off and think about maybe potentially, you know, people listening to this, and I'm assuming, especially based on what we've been talking about, a lot of people taking this forward are going to be looking to places where they can actually go and learn, quote unquote, how to protect themselves. 
I mean, is there any advice that you would give them? Is there anything that they, they should kind of start off with kind of before they even start looking so that when they do look, they already have some idea so they don't go down the rabbit hole and get lost into all the things we've basically been talking about to stay away from? I think that what I've suggested to people in the past is when you're going to look at something, just ask yourself, you know, could you insert that thing into the last real fight that you saw, you know, of those two guys windmilling each other in that bar or the parking lot or whatever, you know, is it, is it spontaneous enough where it'll work in that reduced time frame? you know, could you just, you know, take it away from the movies and stuff like that, but could you insert that as it is into the last real fight you saw? That's one of the things that, you know, have that has that as your baseline, so to speak. And another baseline is, does it seem to make sense? Or are you being asked to suspend your disbelief or trust somebody on the basis that he's had more fights than you? And uh, I used to have this at seminars, where, oh, I still do, you know. But people will say to me, and, and they used to mean it as a compliment, which I obviously appreciate, but they'd say, oh, I really like this seminar. It all makes so much sense. And you're thinking, what does that tell you about the way the business is these days then? If just making sense has now become a superlative. You know, it's a compliment. It's crazy, you know, to be honest. But does it make sense? Is there anything in there that looks like it's defying the laws of physics? And again, you know, these guys, you say, would it work against a boxer? You know, watch a few boxing matches, watch a few Muay Thai fights, watch some MMA, whatever. Would it work against those guys, do you think, honestly? Have that... Uh, what would you say, that, that reputational amnesia where you, you stop listening to what people tell you they want you to think about them, you know, their big biographies and things like that, and just look at the facts. That's that's the kind of advice I usually try and give people, you know, and that's, and that's why they always end up gravitating towards a combat sport. So I'll say, look, you know, obviously I expect people to sell their house, move to within a few miles of me, you know, uh, and, you know, uh, and then do do chores around my house and I'll occasionally throw a technique out. That's, that's what I expect, obviously, but it's usually not what's going to happen. And they'll say, well, is there anybody else you can recommend? And I said, look, if I did recommend anybody else, you're probably going to be a thousand miles away from him as well. So what I would recommend is you need regular training. You cannot live from seminar to seminar and just DVDs and things like that. You need some regular training, get your hands on people on a regular basis them get their hands on you on a regular basis in some sort of competitive kind of outlet, whether it's the training is competitive or you're actually going to start competing, it's up to you. And really, you're looking at combat sports for that. And you can you probably can't find super ninja fighting in your town that you want to do because it's probably specialised, you know. I, I'm in another country, for instance. You, you're not going to, you know, it, it doesn't make any sense you're going to train with me. And you will find, though, a boxing club or you'll find a judo club, or you'll find, you know, some kind of MMA thing. And, you know, do your research, have a look at them. Have they got a fight team? Or are they a guy that last week he was, you know, um, a strip mall McDojo ninja, and now he's bought himself some board shorts and he's a cage fighter instructor. You know, look look at the provenance of them, look at the pedigree, you know. And that's my advice to them, to those guys. You need the regular training, and really, only combat sports is going to give you that. And the other stuff, the specialist stuff, yeah, go on the seminars, buy the books, buy the DVDs, and use bolt that on. It doesn't take a lot of brains to figure out, you know, there's no special 
system you have to learn when to stick your thumb in someone's eye if you're rolling around on the ground. You know, if you get a good opportunity and, you know, you can't laugh it off, but it isn't the nuclear weapon some people think it is. You know, if there is an opportunity for it and your head's in the right place and I ram my thumb in here, right, you're going to get a reaction from that and it's not going to be, it's not going to be great for the guy. But those guys would think that that's all I need now. Just the eyes. Yeah. Once you get to, once you get to a certain level, you can figure out all the dirty tricks yourself. Can't you? you don't have to go on special seminars and buy books on it. To be quite honest, yeah, you still you still need that that like we said earlier on, right? You still need that combat athletic base where you've built the system of timing, endurance, and distancing, and so forth to even apply any of this. So you still need that 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 vehicle in order to achieve any success in quote unquote the dirty tactics, so to speak. Yeah. And the question I always ask them as well is, I, I, say, I say to these guys, how serious are you? And they always assure me that they're deadly serious. So I'll say, so how much physical conditioning are you doing then? And they're like, oh, well, not that much. I says, well, you're not serious then, are you? You know? Because that's free. You know? If you if you, you go online now and you can download a, a bazillion clips on how to train from a bazillion people, and I'm assuming most people have got a floor, no matter how poor you are, because they're usually, they come, come as standard, don't they, usually, you know? So you don't need to buy lots of fancy training equipment. If you've got a floor, you know, you can train. So if, those, if those, these people aren't doing a lot of physical conditioning, that thing that underpins it all, that's completely free as well, then how serious are they? Yeah, Mick, to end off, if people want to find out more about you and getting in contact with you, where's the best place to look? Well, I've got a website, um, www.corecombatants.com, that's uh, usually in various stages of um, completion. So I've got that website, and there's some basic information on there. There's an email email address on there that you can get hold of me. Um, on Facebook, if you look for the C2 training group, then there's a lot of discussion that goes on on there. Um, and other than that, those are the those are the best places to find me, to be quite honest. And uh, if if people want to sell their house and move nearby, well, contact me and um, I'll give them a, a rough address for them. You know? Sure, sure, absolutely. Well, man, I really appreciate it. I, I mean, I think people are going to really love the conversation and it was fantastic chatting to you. Cool. All right, man, let's do it again sometime. find out more about our sponsor, Crazy Monkey, go to crazymonkeydefense.com or to become a trainer, check out mastercrazymonkey.com. Until the next show, get out there and write hook life.